Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. Allow me to begin this week's show with a little thank you. Thank you for listening to the story behind her success. Giving a voice to these women and their stories is an honor for me. Connect with me anytime at Candy O'Terry Official on Facebook and at Candy O'Terry on Insta, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I sure would be grateful for a follow. Get ready because today's episode is all about learning how to say, I'm sorry. We're all guilty of hurting someone's feelings at some point in our lives, purposefully or maybe just by accident. And we've all been hurt by someone throughout the course of our own lives. And a good apology would really help us heal. The truth is, the hurts aren't as bad as our inability to fix them. In the spotlight, a Harvard-trained clinical psychologist who is going to teach us how in four easy steps. She's maintained an independent psychotherapy practice for 35 years, and I'm fascinated to hear her story. The book is called A Good Apology, Four Steps to Make Things Right, and it's available now worldwide, published by Grand Central Publishing. Her name is Molly Howes, and this is her story. Molly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Candy. I really appreciate your having me. 35 years and thousands of patients, I'm guessing you've seen in your practice. What inspired you, Molly, to write this book? I think the biggest inspiration was that I hate waste. And I saw people waste opportunities. I saw people lose relationships that I thought could have been saved. What is it, Molly, that gets in the way of saying those three simple words, I am sorry? Well, I think a lot of things get in the way, and I think it's not really our fault that we're bad at it. I think, for example, the way our brains are wired bias us not to be able to see our mistakes. We literally don't see things that conflict with what we expect to see. Do cultural differences play a part in our ability to say those words? Oh, my gosh, yes. I think cultural differences may be even a bigger factor than our neuropsychology. In Western cultures, and United States in particular, we have a model of what counts as an ideal, independent adult. And that person is confident, sure of themselves, um, you know, kind of without doubt. And so that doesn't really lend itself to wondering if you might have stepped on someone's toes or hurt their feelings. What about other cultures? I have read some things about Latin cultures and the Black community where people are more community inclined so that if, if anyone's hurt, everyone cares, that people take care of each other in a more automatic, natural way. The, the community is the family. That's also true in indigenous populations, I, as I understand it. So walk us through the four steps that we must take, everybody get your pen and paper out, in order to offer a good apology. Even though we're talking about saying I'm sorry, the first step doesn't involve saying anything. It involves listening. And listening is often harder for us than saying whatever we have to say. It's a more receptive, inactive position, and we'd often rather just do something to fix a problem. So listening, understanding, inquiring in a curious, kind of humble way so that we can learn how the other person was really affected by our actions. We might not have intended anything by it, but we need to learn how we affected someone else. So is that just as simple as 
asking the person how they feel? It could be, yes. It's an invitation for a conversation. So we're asking that other person, are you willing to open this up and have a conversation with me about something that went wrong between us? Step two is once you've learned the whole story about how you affected someone else and what led to their reactions, and it it needn't be very complicated, but once you've learned that, then you can make a statement to them of regret and empathy because you care about how they feel. Something like, I'm sorry. It might include those words, but it might not. But it's a sincere, convincing statement. I get it about how you are feeling. I get it that my actions caused that, and I am really sorry. Step number three is restitution. Making the wrong right. In legal terms, that usually means making the other party whole financially. So sometimes there's a material or financial component to it, but in relationships, it's much more often uh, something like a do-over or a symbolic replacement. If you ruined an event for someone, is there a way you can recreate that so they can have some of the experience that you cost them? Now, step number four is the one that's most often missed, even by people who are pretty skilled. And step number four requires you to make sure it won't happen again. that means making a convincing plan. And good intentions are important here, but they're usually not really enough. Something has to actually change. If the conditions that produce the harm are the same, then the harm is probably going to happen again. So what you're saying is that if you don't modify your own behavior, you're likely to hurt someone else with that same action again. Either modify your behavior or the circumstances that support your behavior or help you change. You know, it's hard to change habits. And some things are, you know, one one time occasions, you do one bad thing. But often in a relationship over time, people develop patterns, right? And they get repeated again and again. And if it turns out that one of them is hurting one of the parties, it's hard to change it. It takes some practice, some intention, some agreements, and often the other person can help you know what will what will be convincing enough to them. You know, sometimes too, and this has happened to me in my life, where I've offered a really good apology, and it's not accepted. Yeah. What happens then? Right. Well, you really can't require the other person to forgive you. And an apology is for the other person, but it's also for you. If it's the right thing to do, to take responsibility for something you've done, then it's the right thing for you to do whatever the impact is on the relationship in the future. Sometimes the relationship's gone. It's ruined. It's done. The other person isn't interested. And if that's the case, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. But sometimes the person doesn't accept it because they're not ready. You feel bad right away. You're ready to make it right. And you want to say, I'm sorry. And you want it to go away. The other person isn't ready yet. They're too hurt. They're too mad. Or they haven't quite figured out yet how they're affected. You know, it takes time. So sometimes it takes more than one try. But if the other person is totally not interested and you can tell that they're not ever going to be interested, then you kind of got to deal with it on your own. We live in a time when there is so much loss and so much anger, so much pent up hurt. Change happens one person at a time. I've always believed that. What can we do to come to a better understanding with one another as a nation right now in America? Well, one thing I would say is that when something goes wrong between people, That doesn't have to be the end of the story. 
there often are things you can do to make a repair. You can heal hurt between people. And we often accept that the story's over when something goes wrong. They've hurt us or we've hurt them and we're done. And, you know, on social media time, that means right away, right away, right away, we have a conclusion. And I think if we step back and take our time, human time is slower. And it means understanding, reflecting, considering, listening. Those things are slower things. And I, I think the more we can find our way to that kind of humane response, the more peaceable the culture is. The Me Too movement saw lots of really, really bad apologies, or none at all. You must have been shaking your head as a clinical psychologist, and I'm betting you were also in the middle of writing this book. What was the lesson there? You know, I clip uh, newspaper articles because I like to have the physical newspaper. (laughs) So I had this big pile of stories about apologies that just grew really fast during the Me Too movement. So one thing is people often don't apologize to the right person. Public statements aren't really to the person who was hurt, usually. So that's kind of a mistake. Sometimes the person doesn't know the harm they've done because they haven't done step one. And, you know, Louis C.K. first uh, apologized, in quotes, apologized to the wrong woman for the wrong thing because he didn't really know which person he was dealing with. And... I guess another mistake is sometimes the public statements are full of justifications or explanations or, uh, you know, maybe accusations against the other person. And that stuff just isn't an apology. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. These days, more and more people are working from home. When your computer breaks down, you lose business. This is Dave Elmasian, president of TechHelpBoston.com. Our tech experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer. Same day, next day, and weekends too. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted us since 2000. You can trust Tech Help Boston to keep your computer and systems running right. Call 781-484-1265 or visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. It takes teamwork to put a weekly series like this together. I am so grateful to Jordan Rich and Ken Carberry for giving the story behind her success a home at Shark Productions. And to Dan Tebow, our editor from Fast Twitch Media. J.C. Valeris at Platinum Circle Media, who handles our social media marketing and so much more. Thank you all for making me look so good. I believe, Molly, that our childhoods frame us. And I know, having read some of your short stories, by the way, you're an incredible writer. You grew up in Florida. Is that true? Can you tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like? Well, I went to the west coast of Florida, Tampa Bay area, when I was 12. So I did sort of grow up there. But before that, we moved a lot. My father died when I was very young. My mom had five kids, and the oldest was seven. It would have been really hard for anyone to deal with that situation, and she was clearly overmatched by it. So we moved all the time after that. We started in Oklahoma. We went to upstate New York to an orphanage for three years, and then we all got back together again, my four siblings and I and my mom in Florida. And there wasn't a lot of stability or predictability there either, which is part of why I think I hold on to things. It's part of why I don't like to waste things because everything changed. I couldn't count on anything remaining the same 
from time to time. And I, I held on to precious little things and I mended little things. And, um, and that was very important to me as a way to kind of feel like the world was continuing. You and I first became friends when we shared a little secret between the two of us, which was that we both had tough relationships with our mothers. And I learned a little bit about your relationship with her in that short story that you wrote. It's called Mom at McDowell. She was a musician, a songwriter. How did that relationship affect your life? Well, I learned a lot of who I am from trying hard to get along with her, I think. And some of the things she taught me, I I value. We share some important things like a love of salt water and a love of music and a love of words. But a lot of my relationship with her was pretty painful. And I got some perspective when I was in the orphanage, even as a pretty young child, because even though it was really sad to go there, you know, it was heartbreaking. Nobody goes to an orphanage for good reasons. It was also a place where things stayed the same. And I knew where the next meal was going to be. I knew when the next meal was going to be. I knew what the furniture was going to be like. And something about that let me begin to build a sense of trust in myself, I think. And I think that was crucial. I think that carried me through a very rocky adolescence. And it carried me through dropping out of high school and, you know, kind of being uncertain about where I was going to go, but I was pretty sure I was going to get somewhere. And I found a good college that accepted me and taught me to love learning and awakened my intellectual self, which has been a really important part of me. You've had an entire career as a clinical psychologist. Did you always know what you wanted to do? Was it a path that was hard to find? Can you talk a little bit about that? I wanted to major in almost everything I took in college. I just was so excited about learning everything I could. And that has continued with me, actually, through my life, I think. And I originally wanted to be a journalist. But becoming a psychologist, I thought, would give me work that, where I wouldn't get bored, that there'd be enough variation and change that I would stay interested. And, and it's turned out to be true because every person is so different from everybody else. Each person has a fresh perspective. There's a new world for me to enter. And I've done some research work, which was also different and interesting. And both journalism and psychology, I think, can be thought of as a method that you can apply to unlimited numbers of people and stories and places. It's a method of getting into those lives. Was writing this book healing for you? Have you forgiven your mom? I'm not sure this book was healing about her. I think that work is already done by now. My first book was a memoir about the orphanage, and that was much more painful. And I didn't write until she died. So it wasn't about her in real life anymore. But it was a very painful working out of the feelings of abandonment and the feelings of not being wanted in other ways. No, I think think this book isn't so much about that for me. But I do want to say something about being afraid of having children and being like her. And that is that I was really happy to discover 
when my first child was born that I automatically loved him so deeply. And so I was so very interested in him in a way that I don't think she ever could be about any of her children, that it pointed out to me what was broken in her. And it made me very reassured that it wasn't broken in me. And I was afraid to have children. I was afraid to have a daughter, especially. But it didn't go the way it went with her. It was fundamentally different from the get-go. What do you say to the person who needs an apology, but the person who has hurt them is dead and can never fulfill that need? Yes, that's really hard. I have a lot of compassion for that, being in that situation. One thing you can do, and one thing I recommend in various situations, is for someone to write an imaginary letter. And in this case, it would be the letter that you want to get from the other person. Eve Ensler recently published a book that consisted of a letter that she would have wanted to get from her father, who had already died by then. And it's a very powerful exercise. It's, you know, it doesn't do the same thing, but it does something important. Even in a relationship that's ongoing, where both people are still alive and still, you know, in their plug-in, sometimes it's a very good exercise to write the letter that you would like to receive from your spouse. What would you like him or her to say to you that would make you feel better about something that's gone wrong? And if you write it fully, it informs you, but if you're willing to share it, and it really informs the other person about what you need. I think those kinds of letters are really therapeutic. Molly, when an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I'm pretty persistent. And so, you know, in writing a book, there are so many things that get in the way. In publishing a book, there are so many things that get in the way. In earning a PhD, there are so many things that get in the way. In a marriage, there are so many things that come up. It seems to me that the most important thing I do is to come back and try again. Carry on. And people sometimes ask me, how do you run a marathon? And the answer is you don't run a marathon. You know, you run a step. And then you run another step. You only can do it one step at a time. So I think that's what I do is I keep walking. I keep trying. I believe that as women, we live our lives in chapters. I've come to believe this from interviewing over 700 women at this point. And I think that there are times in our lives when we're asked about success and we see it very differently in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond. Right now where you are, Molly, what does success mean to you? Well, all our kids are doing okay. They're actually doing well. And not just sort of career-wise, but they're solid, healthy people I have a lot of respect for. And that seems like success to me. Molly, I want to say thank you so much for being our guest this week on The Story Behind Her Success. The book is called A Good Apology, Four Steps to Make Things Right. Molly Howes is the author. I'm just so grateful for your friendship and for sharing this incredible wisdom with listeners today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Candy. Thanks for listening to The Story Behind Her Success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you 
If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?